once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. We're glad that you're here. I'm excited to be with you for the third week of four in this series that we're calling Jesus Outside the Box. And if you've been with us, you kind of probably, hopefully by now, uh, understand the premise of why we're calling it that. I'm going to give you a quick recap. So if you have been with us, I apologize for the repetition. But for others who maybe have not, I want you to understand where we're coming from with this. So the whole idea is that we live life with lots of boxes. Don't you love that I hold a box just so you know exactly what I'm talking about? We have boxes for, for all the categories and areas of our lives. And we may, you may not realize that. I often don't realize it, but we do. And we want everything in that category to fit into the box that we've created for it. So we'll do it with most everything in our life, if, if not everything. We'll do it with all kinds of relationships, with uh, parents and spouses and children. I was just thinking this week about how... Uh, here I am preaching about this, and I, I do this with my children so much. I, I've created for all four of them a box that I have anticipated and, and kind of created for what their life is going to look like, what they're going to be interested in, how much they're going to love Jesus, um, what activities that they'll do, and, and uh, interest and whatnot. And if they fit into what I have created for them, then I'm very pleased with my children. But if they don't, then I'm frustrated, I'm disappointed. I'm not satisfied with their lives, not because I'm embracing them as those who God is creating and moving in his own way, but because they don't fit into the box that I have for them. We'll do it with all kinds of things, our jobs, so on and so forth. The premise of this series is that we have a box for Jesus. You carry a box for Jesus, whether you realize it or not, and I do too. And we want Jesus to fit into the parameters of this box. I want Jesus to move and to act and to do according to what I have planned for him. To answer my prayers in accordance to what I have said are best. To fit into what I am saying, this is how you are to operate and reign in my life, Jesus. And Jesus is not in the box. Jesus doesn't fit into any box that we have created for him to be in our likeness or our image or our preferences or our parameters. Jesus doesn't have a box. He's outside the box. He is who he is, and he calls us to move into him, to be in Christ in such a way that we drop our boxes. And we say, I no longer have any categories for you, Christ, in the sense of what I want you to be. I am fully aligning to who you are. I've said it, I think, each week, but I'll say it again. The Jesus of your box is not worth worshiping because he's not real. He's what you've made up and what I've made up. The Jesus of the Bible is. And he's very different oftentimes than what we, what we long for him to be. Now, let me say that there's a lot of this series that at least as I've prepared it and as Bob and Caleb and I have worked on it, it feels really straightforward and really simple. If you've been in church for any amount of time, there's probably not much of anything that we're going to share with you in this series that you haven't heard before. The question is, 
not, have I heard it before? The question is, am I moving in line with who Jesus is? Is my life aligning to him? And am I worshiping him for who he is, according to the scriptures? In the previous weeks, we talked about uh, the three offices, or we're hitting on the three offices of Jesus. We've talked about two of them. We've talked about Jesus as the great prophet, the ultimate prophet. And so we labeled the first week, Jesus speaks, that he has, even as we just read in the Heidelberg Catechism, that he is the one who proclaimed for us and and revealed to us the secret will of God for salvation. So he's the ultimate prophet. Last week, we talked about how he's the one who atones for us. He's the, the ultimate priest. He's the one who mediates between us and God. And he's the one who even now, for all of eternity, intercedes for us on behalf of us to the Father. This week, we're going to be focusing in on Jesus' office of king, that he reigns. He speaks, he atones, he reigns. As we think about that, oftentimes songs most effectively express what we really feel, what we most desire. So allow me to quote the, uh, the great theologian, the legend, Tom Petty. As he did just that in his 1994 song, It's Good to Be King. Some of you know this song, have heard it. I seriously doubt that Tom thought it would be quoted in a church when he wrote it. Listen to some of the lyrics. He says, it's good to be the king if just for a while. To be there in velvet, yeah, to give him a smile. It's good to get high. I'm going to believe the best in Tom and think that he's talking about up on the pedestal. And never come down. It's good to be king of your own little town. It's good to be king and have your own way. Get a feeling of peace at the end of the day. And then the last verse says this. It's good to be king and have your own world. Now, the, the song is simple, straightforward. We might even laugh at the simplicity of it. But it's, it's what we want, is it not? I can remember first listening to that song when I was in high school, and I don't think I expressed this consciously, but there was one of the reasons maybe I liked the song so much is because it, it really expressed the desire of my heart as a high school student. I want, I want freedom I want to be king. I want to control my life. I don't want to have a curfew. I want to have my own little town where I rule and I reign. And even though that was true of me when I first heard the song and would listen to it back then, it certainly expresses the desire and the battle that rages within us all the time is we have this king, Jesus, who has laid himself out for us literally on the cross and has paved the way for us in every way and then has ascended to the right hand of the Father and is the great king, as we'll get into in just a minute. But yet we battle against him and we want to be king over our lives. We want to rule and reign. We want to do things our way when we want to do them. We want to set our limits where they are or where they aren't, our parameters. The natural disposition of the human heart is to rule and to reign over our lives as we see fit. I don't have to convince you of this. You know it's the truth. You know it, you feel it, and I do too. Here's the problem. If we are kings of our lives, the end result is not what Tom said. Tom said that we get a feeling of peace at the end of the day. When we're kings ruling over our lives, It's actually quite the opposite. 
It's not a sense or feeling of peace. It's that of anxiety. Here's why. We are not powerful enough or good enough to give ourselves what we ultimately need. Let me say that again. You and I are not powerful enough nor good enough to give ourselves what we ultimately need. More than self-rule, we need a king who is supremely powerful and supremely good. And the good news is we get a king like that in Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews 1, 1 through 14. I'm actually going to read, in the previous weeks I've read just the first five verses because that was the the main, uh, as we talked about prophet and priest, that's where it was contained. But this week, really, we're looking at all of chapter 1 as he begins to unravel this office of king, the author of Hebrews. So I'm going to read all 14 verses So bear with me. It says this, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. There's the prophet piece. Whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, there's the priest part, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. So he begins to allude to kingly language. And then the rest of chapter 1 is him unpacking this Jesus as king, the one who is superior to the angels in all things. Verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Let me pray as this is the word of God. Father, thank you for your word. Would you bless it as we enter into it to to learn from you? We believe and trust that your word is what it says it is, that it is living and active, that it will not return void. So through it, would you have your way with us today in our hearts and our minds? Would you shape us and make us into your image, into your likeness? And would you be glorified? Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You'll notice in your Bible... Or even if you're looking at the scriptures on your phone, you'll notice that once you get to verse 5, from there on out, really the rest of the chapter from there on out is a lot of these indentations. And what that is, is that the author of Hebrews is, he's writing, remember, he's writing to a group of Hebrew Christians, Jewish Christians who have believed the Old Testament, what we know as the Old Testament scriptures for a long time. But if you'll remember from week one, let me refresh your memory, These these are a group of people, as we can tell from the text, that the author of Hebrews is continually challenging to don't give up. 
Stay in the fight. Endure the race that you're running. Stay faithful because this is a people that implicitly here, what we're picking up is that there are, there are people who are beginning to doubt. There are people who are beginning to doubt, is Jesus the one whom we waited for? Is he king? Is he the long-awaited Messiah king? And they're struggling with that. Not only that, but we can tell from the text that there are false teachers around them that are teaching them things that are simply not true. One of them here is that the author immediately picks up on this whole idea that Jesus is superior to the angels. There were false prophets and teachers coming around them telling them that the, the, the angels were on par with Jesus and that we should ultimately be worshiping the angels as well. And then there were even some false teachers who were insinuating that the same should be done with the prophets of old. And so right off the bat, the author of Hebrews is wanting to establish something, and it's this, the superiority of Jesus, that he's the ultimate prophet. We don't, we don't worship other prophets because he's prophet, that he's the ultimate king. We don't we don't worship angels. Angels are created beings that were actually created to serve man. Which is in verse 14 that we read there right at the end. And so he's establishing the superiority of Jesus right off the bat. So let me ask you this question. This is the, well, I'm going to ask you two questions this morning. And we'll unpack the first and then we'll sit in the second a little bit longer. But the first question is this. Who is this king? Who is this king? Let me give you... Six things that are true from this text and a couple of other texts that, we ha- texts that we haven't read yet. First, as I've already mentioned, he's the superior king. Listen to verse 4 again. Having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And in the very first Old Testament passage that he quotes, right there in verse 5, where it says, For which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? He's quoting Psalm 2. That's Psalm 2, verse 7. And I want you to understand something. I want you to understand that the Psalms, really, in so many ways, many of the Psalms point to the kingship of Jesus. That the psalmist over and over again are talking about this coming king. And it's easy to read the Psalms sometimes and assume that it's talking about King David or King Solomon, and it is in the immediate, but there's this bigger picture that's being painted here by the psalmist that maybe they didn't even fully understand when they wrote it because they were inspired by the Holy Spirit, pointing to a true and better king who is to come. And two of the psalms that do that the most prominently are Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are quoted often in Hebrews. The author of Hebrews, whoever that person was, was very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures in such a way to where he was helping these Jewish Christians understand that all of the scriptures are pointing to this king, to Jesus. And that you don't need to give up, you don't need to lose hope, you need to persevere Stay faithful in the faith because this is the one that was the long-promised Messiah. He is the one that you have longed for for so long. And so he establishes right off the bat that he is superior to the angels. And he shows through the Old Testament texts how that's so clear over and over again. He quotes 2 Samuel in here. One of those that we read was 2 Samuel verse 14, verse 7. He quotes Deuteronomy. He quotes Isaiah 61. He quotes uh, Psalm 97. He quotes all kinds of passages to help them see this is the king who is superior to the angels. Secondly, not only is he a superior king, he's the eternal king. Look at verse 8. It says this, But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever 
and ever. The scepter of righteousness of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. And then verses 11 and 12, they will perish, but you will remain. Talking about the heavens that have been created by Christ himself. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Sometimes I, I used to ask students when I was doing college ministry, I'd, I'd ask them a trick question and say, how long has Jesus been around? And just without thinking, they would, they would, or maybe they didn't know, but many that did grow up in the church would say, oh, 2,000 years. And I'd say, think about that again. Jesus, as we know him, is the incarnation of God himself, fully God and fully man. Yes, came around 2,000 years ago. But Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Holy One, God himself, has no beginning and has no end. He is eternal. I was talking with one of my kids the other night, my eight-year-old Abigail, and putting her to bed, and she just looked at me and said, who made God? That's one of those that I can remember as a kid, and even now, if you stop and try to think about that, you will give yourself goosebumps, and it will just freak your mind out, because we, we can't wrap our minds around eternity. God is infinite. We are finite. He is holy. He is outside of space and time. We are confined to space and time. There is many, many things, as Isaiah says, that are beyond our comprehension about God, because we will never understand the infinite, uncreated as the finite and created. Jesus has no beginning or end. He's eternal. And his kingdom has no end. It's eternal. Not only is Jesus superior, not only is he eternal, he's creator. Verse 10 says this. It says, And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. I'm just going to briefly touch on this because we talked about it a lot in the first week. But Jesus is the one through whom God the Father, first person of the Trinity, created God the Father spoke creation into being. God the Son is the hands through which creation came about. First, uh, uh, Colossians 1, 16 and 17 tell us this, that all things are created by Christ and for Christ. John 1 tells us that, that there was nothing that exists that was not made by Jesus. And then here in Hebrews 1, we're told again that everything was created by Christ. So he's the creator king. He's the sovereign king. I didn't read this verse, but if you want to flip over in your Bibles or just listen to this verse, it's chapter 2 of Hebrews, verse 8. It says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. God left nothing outside of the control of Jesus. Now, pause. I want you to think about that sentence. If you've been in or around church for any period of time, that is a sentence that you have probably said or heard said often. Jesus is sovereign. There is nothing that is outside of his control. And we may say that and pass by it without really thinking about the profound implications of it. Think about this. There is nothing outside of his control. Nothing. Though it may feel as though you have begun to lose control, over circumstances in your life, even though it feels as though maybe in a dark season of your life, Jesus has abandoned you. He's not there. There is not one thing, not one iota, not one little hair of your life that he is not over and in control of. He is your sovereign king. He's the suffering king. The very next verse in chapter two says, but we see him for a little while the one who was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He came and he suffered. And back then, the Jews and many people in the world missed him as the Messiah King because they were expecting a king who would come and who would reign with the sword, one who would come in and destroy the Roman government and give the rightful land of the Hebrews back and give them their government back, their kingdom back, and that he would reign and rule. And what they didn't understand and what they missed is they got a king, but not the one they wanted. They missed and totally misunderstood that what they needed more than a new governmental structure and a new kingdom on earth was they needed to be rescued from their sins. They needed to be rescued from themselves long before they needed to be rescued from Rome. And there will be a day when Jesus comes back and he will come with a sword and he will come and set up his kingdom forever and ever in the new heavens and the new earth and we will, followers of Christ, reign with him. But that's not how he came the first time. He came the first time to suffer for your sin and my sin. And today we struggle with the same thing. The same way where they got a king but not the king they were looking for. We struggle with that. We say, Jesus, you're king, but you're not the king I want. Could you please fit into my box? Would you do things differently? Lastly, he's the conquering king. I mentioned Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. I'd encourage you to read those on your own sometime this week. They are, in many ways, the backbone of Hebrews. If Hebrews is a skeleton, the book of Hebrews is a skeleton. Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are the backbone, the spine. And in these two psalms and many other psalms, you see this this language that's pointing to this conquering king who is to come, like I just talked about. There's a picture of your king. It was brief. We could have said a lot more. But we've got to move on to the second question. What does this king offer? First, he offers true refuge. Sticking with Psalm 2, there's a verse in Psalm 2, verse 12. The second part, the very end of that verse, that says, Blessed is he whose refuge is in the Lord. This king, this this king of power and might and glory and splendor and majesty and holiness, perfection. This, This king, he's also the king of refuge. That word refuge has this connotation to it, and the the psalmist even uses this word sometimes where they talk about this hiding place, that that God is our hiding place, that the king is our hiding place, that under his wings we dwell. He's our refuge. Our kids are 14, soon to be 10 next week, 8 and 5. This doesn't happen as much in our house anymore because they're getting older. But with my youngest one, the five-year-old, we still do this occasionally. But when they were younger, we, I really enjoyed and they enjoyed playing hide-and-seek in the house. So I would count to you know, whatever number, 20, 30, whatever it would be, and I'd give them time to go hide. And then I'd come through the house. You know how it works. I don't know why I'm explaining, explaining hide-and-seek. But I'd come through the house, and there was something interesting about children in the hiding places that they choose. They're always terrible. 
awful hiding places. And you have to, as, uh, you know, as dad, you kind of have to be like, oh, where's Annie? Where's Ellie? I, you know, I can't see them. But, you know, they're hiding something similar to this, right? They're, they're kind of behind something like this, and, and you can totally see them. And I was playing that game with, that, with them one time years ago, and it dawned on me, this is exactly what I do. I was probably at the time reading some through the Psalms and thinking about this, this consistent thread throughout the Psalms of, of refuge, that God is our refuge, that Jesus is our refuge. He's the king to come. Uh, take refuge in him. And, and then I, I choose some of the worst hiding places. Some of the worst places of refuge, that's where I'll run. Let me give you an example, and this sounds incredibly silly. I'm even embarrassed to admit it, but because on the surface, it's not a bad thing. It's a good hobby, but I will run to it as a refuge. I love college football, and I will find myself spending uh, way too much inordinate time reading about recruiting, right? And, and that's okay, and I'll be on this message board, but, but it's not okay when it becomes a place of refuge for me, a, a place to escape, a place to give me something that deep down I really long for. It, it'll, it'll never give me. On a more serious note, there are many who run to the refuge, the false refuge, the, the, the pit of quote-unquote refuge of pornography. That we believe this lie that, that, that screams to us that what we see on a screen is going to be able to give us true intimacy in such a way that we will be fulfilled at a deep level that only God can. And what we experience with pornography and really just sin in general is that sin is, is like the economic term diminishing returns. That the more we invest in it, the, least, the, the less we get back. And the more it drains us, it's salt water. We drink and we drink and we drink and we drink and we wind up more thirsty and it, and it kills us. We'll run to relationships, places of refuge to say that this relationship is really what I'm looking to, to be for me, what only Jesus can. And, and maybe it's not even a relationship that you necessarily have defined, but maybe it's an inappropriate relationship at work. Oh, it's just flirting. It's, it's harmless. But deep down, you know that it's an emotional adultery from your spouse. All kinds of things that we'll run to that are terrible hiding places when this king King Jesus is everything we long for. And he offers himself to us as the place of refuge. And we say, maybe, or I'm busy, or maybe next Sunday. When will he stop preaching? I'm hungry. Secondly, True justice. True justice. Jesus is a king who is not only incredibly merciful and good, but he's also powerful. And as Bob started us off this morning, he is a God that we can approach with boldness because of our mediation of Jesus on our behalf. But there is this sense of awe and reverent fear. Because what we see in that same verse that I quoted to you a minute ago in Psalm 2, 12, at the beginning of that verse says, Kiss the son lest he be angry, and you die and perish in the way. Meaning if you reject this son, if you reject this king, then, and you don't run to him as this place of refuge, 
then he is a God of justice who has to deal with sin. This is what we talked about last week. That he has to deal appropriately with evil and with sin. And so this king comes and he offers himself as a place of refuge. And then if, if that weren't enough, the way he is our refuge is by pouring out his justice on himself. It's the cross. The place where perfect justice and profound mercy kiss and meet together. To where he takes upon himself the full and just wrath of God. So the true justice that this king offers is ultimately found in him. Certainly he will bring justice to the world upon his second return. But justice now is found in a person. His name is Jesus. The very one who could have poured out his just wrath on your head has instead extended mercy. So we have this picture of this king who offers us true refuge and true justice. I started out with talking about how we are, we're terrible kings over our own lives. And I, I made this statement. I said it's because, and there's more to it than this, but just to, to kind of put it in a summation sentence, it's because we are, uh, we are far, uh, we, we are, well, let's say it this way, we are not powerful enough or good enough to give ourselves what we really need. I apologize that all my illustrations are with kids, but that's, that's the life I'm in right now as a, as a father. But it makes me think of my five-year-old, Annie. And all of our children, really, in some ways, have gone through seasons of this that I'm about to explain, but she's in it right now. She's in this phase where uh, almost every night, at least three or four, five nights a week, uh, she cries out for me. In the darkness in the night, she just starts screaming for daddy, and then she'll, if I don't get to her in time, she'll run down the hall to our room, and she just wants to be in my arms. Some of you have experienced this as, as fathers or even grandfathers, and, and the reason for that, the, the undertone of that is this, is at least in her eyes, the reason that she does that is because she understands that in the darkest of nights, when I'm most fearful and when I'm most incapable of doing anything to get the fear away, I know where to run. And it's to a father who I experience to be powerful, the one who can protect me, and good, the one who will love me. Now, you and I know that I am very insufficient in power and goodness. But in her eyes, she sees one who is powerful and who is good. And she knows that in the night, when fear has taken root, that's where I run. And for us, deep down, you know the old phrase, there are no, fox, there are no atheists in foxholes. We know. We've been created in the image of the one that we deeply know. He is the one who is powerful and who is good. And deep down in the darkest of nights, when everything is fractured and broken in my world, I do know where to run. The question is, will I run there and experience the power and the goodness of my father, of my king? Our nature is this. We want to control everything. We want to be king. And really... One way to express that is to say this. We want to do everything in our power to self-protect. Let me be in control and coordinate and orchestrate things in such a way to where we get this mirage of believing that we are protecting ourselves. But friends, listen to this. When our tendency is to continue, continue to run to self-protection, then the only result is anxiety and fear. Always. 
Let me be in control. Let me try to order things. And it will always end in this effort of self-protection and anxiety and fear. But the king, the one whom we surrender to, that's, right, that, that, that's what king language is, right? That we are the ones under him, and so therefore we surrender to the king. And when we surrender to the king, not self-protect, but surrender, then the result is peace and hope. Self-protection, where I always want to go, anxiety and fear. Surrender to the king, where I know I need to go, peace and hope. Are you captivated by this king? Are you surrendered to this king? People who are captivated by the king, people who are surrendered to the king, become fully committed to his kingdom and the expansive process of the kingdom. I'll end with this. A few years ago, I was in China. It's when I was working with Campus Crusade for Christ, or Crew is is called now, and I was the the leader of the ministry at the University of Alabama, and we had a number of of uh, former students that we had sent over to a particular campus to do missionary work in this in this particular city. And so I was kind of the one that would oversee our campus, obviously in Tuscaloosa, but then I was also from afar the one that would kind of oversee and and give encouragement to our staff and, and leaders in, in the other country. And so this spring break, whatever year it was, I can't remember, this spring break I'm over there and, and I'm meeting up with some of our staff that I had been able, had the privilege to see many of them come to faith in Jesus as college students and then had the great privilege of discipling them and now they're over there doing the same work with, in a foreign land. And so I'm meeting with them, but they brought a few of their friends with them. Uh, they're Chinese friends, and I'm sitting across the table from one of those friends, and we begin to talk, and I begin to ask him where he's from, and he tells me where he's from, and he says that he's from the far western side of the country that borders Pakistan, which uh, I didn't know this, but I always think if anybody is any religion in China, it's going to be Buddhism, but that far western side is, off, is mostly Muslim because of the influence. And not only are mostly Muslim, but many of them are hostile Muslims. And this is where he was from. The city that we're in is in the central part of the, uh, the country that he had come to for college. We're continuing to get to know each other, and I'm saying something, and he stops me mid-sentence, and he begins to get tears in his eyes. And he, I don't want you to think that I'm some great and wonderful person because I literally just did my job in telling people about Jesus. But he says, thank you for what you do. And I said, yeah, I mean, okay. And he says, if you didn't do what you did, then these guys don't become Christians, and then they don't come to me, and I don't become a Christian. And then he basically said this, and if that doesn't happen, then I don't get to go home and tell people at home about Jesus. I began to tear up, and I told him, it's, it's the Lord. It's all his goodness to use uh, this old phrase that I used to, that my old pastor used to say all the time, God uses crooked sticks to strike straight blows for the kingdom of God. I love that because we are crooked. But he's straight. And he strikes straight blows through us. And anyway, I said, I began to ask him about, I said, wait, wait, hold on. R- remind me, you said you were from where? And he tells me again. And I said, and you said that that was a really hostile Muslim place, right? And he said, yeah. And I said, if you go back there after college to tell people about Jesus, um, will you be in danger? And he says, yes. And I said, will your life be in danger? And he says, yes. And I said, are you scared? And he said, no. 
And then he said something. I wish I could remember exactly how he said it, but he used the word king. I remember that. And he just simply said something to the effect of, when you know the king and you know his power and you know his goodness and you're surrendered to him, it's okay. And I want to tell people about this king. How will you take this king into the places where he has you? How will you be to surrender to the king in the places where he has you now? Do you marvel at this king? Are you captivated by him? And are you committed to his mission, his kingdom? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time together. Thanks for your word, for your grace and mercy that speaks over us acceptance and joy. Father, I pray that no one in the room right now would be feeling guilt of how maybe I haven't been captivated with the king and I haven't been committed to his mission. Lord, I pray that what would be happening in the hearts and in the minds of us right now is that our eyes would be tuned to full gaze upon the beauty of Jesus, our king. That even now, as we prepare our hearts to take the table, that we would uh, see the beauty of this table that draws us in to say, you have gone to lots of poor refuges, but let me be your place of refuge. Hide in me, dine on me, says King Jesus, and ultimately rest in me. That's what you tell us, Christ, and we want to do that well now. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day. Thank you.